Don't know if you've ever wondered what you would do if you were Jesus and it was the day after the resurrection. You see, if I was him and I'd been resurrected from the dead, I would probably walk through the wall of the council chamber and go, how do you like me now? Or maybe I'd um, tap Pontius Pilate on the shoulder. Boop! It would be fun to do those things. And that's why everybody should be glad that I'm not Jesus. I don't know if you've ever wondered what you would do if you were Jesus and it was the day after the resurrection. You see, because when you read what he actually did, it, it makes you wonder what you would do, or it does me anyway. You see, if I was him and I'd been resurrected from the dead, I would probably think it would be fun to walk through the wall of the council chamber into the Sanhedrin. Now that's the place where the high priests and the leaders of the Jewish religious movements, um, where, where they met. And I would like to just walk into there through the wall and go, how do you like me now? Because they were the people who were responsible for him being crucified really. So that might be one of the things I'd do. Or maybe I'd um, tap Pontius Pilate on the shoulder during the night to wake him up. And then in the dim light of the glow of his lamp in his bedroom, go boo, just to freak him out. Or I find the idea of walking through the city of Rome appealing. Walking right into the palace of Caesar, the emperor, and saying, the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of my father. And by the way, get your army out of my homeland. It would be fun to do those things. And that's why everybody should be glad that I'm not Jesus. You see, because when Jesus came back from the dead, when he was resurrected, he did not have vengeance on his mind. That's not how he acted. In fact, in John chapter 20 and verse 25, instead of going to Caesar's palace or the Sanhedrin or Pilate's house, he meets with a man called Thomas. Now, Thomas has got loads of issues. He, he feels left out for a start because when Jesus turns up to, to meet the disciples after his resurrection, for whatever reason, Thomas isn't actually there. So he misses out. He misses out on the, the whole reunion thing. And then when everybody tells him, he becomes a bit cynical and, and says, well, I won't believe that unless I actually touch the 
place where the nails went into his hands unless I, I touched the scar in the side where the Roman stuck his spear to make sure that Jesus was dead. Now, there was a British songwriter and he said this. He said, I'm a professional cynic, but my heart's not in it. And I think, I think that pretty well describes Thomas, actually. It, it pretty well describes lots of people in the 21st century. Um, we're quite cynical. And, and Thomas was, was cynical. But Jesus decides that this is the guy that he's going to meet. And he meets him in his cynicism and doubt. Now, I meet Christians all the time who keep talking about faith. You've got to have faith. And I know that the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But Jesus doesn't wait for Thomas to have faith. He meets Thomas in his cynicism and doubt. And I love that. I think that's really brilliant. I, I love the fact that Jesus doesn't wait for Thomas to sort himself out. He goes to meet him exactly where he is. Now, it happens with somebody else too. Peter, uh, in, in John chapter 21, in verse 3 onwards, there's this incredible story you should read it. It's fun. Um, Peter doesn't know what to do or what to think or where to go. The crucifixion's happened. Um, there's these rumors that Jesus has risen from the dead. He doesn't know what to do, what to think or where to go. So like most guys, he goes to work. And Jesus turns up at Peter's place of work. Now that's going to mess with your work day. And it certainly does with Peter, because actually after this encounter, he is never the same. Um, and Jesus turns up and he starts cooking fish for breakfast on the beach, because Peter's a fisherman. And Peter jumps out of the boat, swims to shore, gets on the beach and eats fish with Jesus. In his confusion, Jesus meets him. Again, I think that's brilliant. Because I meet so many people who are confused. And often I get confused, especially when I read this and some of the tough things that it talks about in here. I get confused about it. And Jesus, God, meets me in my confusion. He doesn't wait for me to sort it all out first. Now, there, there's other people that Jesus meets. In Luke chapter 24... Actually, on the evening that Jesus is resurrected, he goes for a walk and he meets some other people who are also out walking. Only these people are totally disappointed, let down and hurt. They'd had their hopes in the teachings of Jesus. They had their hopes in the kingdom of God coming to earth. They had their hopes in all that. And then after the the crucifixion and the rumors of the resurrection, they just, they just walked away. Basically, they turned their back on it out of hurt and disappointment and walked away. I meet loads of people who, who have hopes in God and have hopes in spirituality, who, who turn their back on it all and just walk away. In fact, 
probably this whole valley's full of people like that who've had some sort of spiritual encounter and some sort of knowledge with God, but for whatever reason, have decided to turn and walk away. Now, the great thing about the story in Luke chapter 24 is this, is that Jesus walks alongside them in their disappointment. Now, that's a great thought. Again, he doesn't wait for them to sort out all their mess. He walks with them through their disappointment and hurt. And I'm encouraged by that. I really am. Now, these are the people that Jesus chooses to meet. Not the power brokers. Not the political big punchers of the day. He meets ordinary normal people. Why? Because the earth has way more ordinary normal people in it than it does powerful political punchers. This world is full of ordinary normal people. And those are the people that Jesus chooses to meet. He meets somebody right after the resurrection who is absolutely broken and crushed with grief. In fact, it's, it's a, the scene is described a little bit like that they, they've almost got to the point where there's no tears left to cry. In John chapter 20, there's some people who come to the tomb and you can almost imagine their eyes being swelled up and puffy with all the tears they've cried and, and rubbing on their eyes and the absolute racking pain of grief and the emptiness that it leaves inside them. In fact, their eyes were so bleary that when Jesus stood right in front of them, they didn't recognize who he was until in verse 16, he leans forward and gently speaks the name Mary. And in her grief, she recognizes him. That's an amazing thought too. That in the middle of our grief, in the middle of our heartache, in the middle of our brokenness, Jesus speaks our name. Now, he doesn't wait for us to get over it. Doesn't wait for time to heal. He just speaks our name. In times of grief, I am so glad that Jesus knows my name. In times of sorrow and crushing disappointment, I am so glad that Jesus knows my name. And the great news is this, is he knows your name too. These are the people Jesus met. And, and in Acts chapter one and verse six-ish, he meets with a bunch of political ideologues. Now, these guys, keep asking him all the time. They're his friends. And they keep asking him all the time, are you now going to put the political system right? Well, that's a great question. Because human beings have been involved in politics since human beings arrived on the earth. Since we were put here, we've been involved in politics. Cain and Abel were involved in politics. Who was right and who was wrong? Human beings have always been involved in that. But systems come and systems go. And, and 
kingdoms come and kingdoms go and there's political coups and there's unrest and then there's then there's there's violent uprising then there's revolutions then then we have democratic elections or we have rigged elections we have all these things but very little seems to change it almost looks like we we swap one system for another system and unless we pay more taxes or less taxes depending on which tax bracket we're in very little seems to change and jesus looks at these political ideologues and he says this he says look guys go and wait for god by the power of the holy spirit to come and live in your life now i i believe there's a reason he does that there's lots of reasons he does it but for me one of the standout reasons is this politics and political systems change things from the outside but god when he comes into our life by the power of the holy spirit changes humanity from the inside out suddenly when i when i get up in the morning things are different now it's not because i i've got nabob coffee instead of folgers or it's not because i i bought new sheets and the thread counts higher it's not because i went to sleep country and got a new mattress it's because the holy spirit changes the way that i view the rest of the world it changes the way i view me and he changes how i want to react with the rest of the world around me changes my whole world view actually changes how i relate to god himself and jesus says to these political guys look guys you don't get it you still don't get it just wait for the holy spirit of god to fill your life wait for that wait for him to change your disappointment wait for him to change your doubt wait for him to take the grief and the pain and the anguish that we feel over loss wait for him to to take our dissatisfaction over political systems wait for the holy spirit to change us and change things around us i love the fact that jesus visited these people but what i love about it most is this that he visited them all in their mess He never waited for them to get their their mess together. He met them in it. And that and that makes me ask a question of myself and maybe of you. Where do I need Jesus to meet me in my mess today? Where where do you need him to meet you today? Where? You see I've shaken hands with princes in palaces really have I've also sat with pedophiles who who are child murderers I've slept in some of the nicest hotels in the world and I've also slept on the dirtiest dirt floors <laughs> where human sewage and animal sewage runs down a little scraped out ditch in the middle of the room i've showered in showers where the water smells of sewage and got out 
smelling worse than I actually was when I went in. And my, my clothes have been so stinky in those places that when I've come home, I've had to burn them. But I've also stayed and swum in the most pristine pools, the cleanest oceans and cleanest rivers. And I've shaken hands with incredibly wealthy people and shaken hands and, and spent time with incredibly poor people, but I've never met anybody who is outside the reach of Jesus. I never met anybody who Jesus couldn't deal with their mess. Now their mess may look different. The mess that a rich person's in is just nicer stuff. But the anguish in here is still the same. Jesus wants to deal with the mess of our lives. You know what? The church all over the world is full of people who Jesus has met in their mess. The church in the valley here, Pemberton Community Church, full of people who are in a mess. And the wonderful thing is we know it. <laughs> and the better thing is, is that God knows it and he meets us anyway. Oh God, I pray in Jesus' name that whoever is listening to this today, whether we are struggling with our doubts and cynicism, whether we are hurt and disappointed, whether we are overwhelmed with grief, whether we are disillusioned by politics, wherever we are, Father, I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, that you will meet us in the mess that we are in. and fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit and draw us closer and closer to you every single day. Father, I thank you that you did not push me away when you met me in my mess and that my mess does not scare you at all. Thank you for that. Amen. You know something? That's so true. Whatever mess you're in, doesn't scare Jesus one bit. Whatever doubts I have and cynicism and whatever challenges and debates and pokes I want to take at this book, it's big enough for it and he can stand the challenge. Bless you. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. You don't have a ton of things in common with God, but there is one thing. You speak. So does he. God spoke light into existence with his words. I wonder what you could speak into existence with your words this week. I wonder what kind of love you could speak into your marriage that feels like it's in neutral. I wonder what kind of courage you could speak into the heart of a child who's hurting. I wonder what kind of peace you could speak into your broken friendship. What kind of hope you could speak into your own weary soul. I want you to know that the most powerful words you're going to speak this week is probably not going to be on a stage or a conference call or closing the deal with a client that you want. The most powerful words you're going to speak is probably just with one or two people listening, maybe zero. It's totally possible that the most powerful sentence you'll say this week is a thoughtful text message 
that you send to a friend who's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's the apology email that you finally get the courage to send. It's the whispered prayers through tears in the middle of a dark night. Powerful words aren't just for preachers who stand behind pulpits. They're for parents who stand next to bunk beds and speak life with their kids. For spouses who share hopes and dreams during pillow talk and not criticism. For teenagers Stand up to bullies. Stand up for the uncool kids. Your tongue is so small, but so powerful. Your tongue is telling a story.
upon you and a thousand generations in your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations in your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you Thank you.